You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 19th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Salutations, everybody. Hello. Salutations hey, and felicitations, Evan. Oh, and felicitations. How could I forget the Squire of Gothos? Shame <laughs> on me. Know. Shame <laughs> on me. The hell are you guys talking about? Well, Rebecca, aren't you watching the Star Trek series? I guess I haven't gotten up to that point yet. This is the original series. I'm watching The Next Generation. You know what I saw recently? Star Trek Continues, hmm? which is a, a fan. Star Trek Continues. It's a fan episode a fan video where it's as if the at the seasons continued as if it wasn't canceled after three seasons so it's not <laughs> like it's not like a parody and it's not an update or a reboot or anything it's like what would a fourth season have actually been like oh cool and, and they do their best to reproduce the production value the sets are identical all the sound effects the music the acting hmm. the whole culture you know it's definitely embedded in that late 60s you know in terms of everything and the uh, some oh, of the actors yeah. are damn good the guy who's doing kirk has his mannerisms down absolutely down and it's not a parody of his mannerisms no no it's not it's not a parody it's an imitation uh, and they're like things like it's like yeah, Kirk does do that, you know. It's like, like <laughs> you uh, things you wouldn't even think of, like that the way so he moves Kirk. his arms when he walks. Yeah, it's just amazing. Hey, remember that Star Trek episode where a poisonous gas covered most of the planet and murdered millions of people? Ah. Uh, oh wait, no, that was real life. Oh my god, oh, that's that's worse. <laughs> On June twenty second. 1783, a poisonous Whoa. cloud, which is caused by the eruption of the Lockheed Volcano in Iceland, uh, finally reached France. So this is kind of, um, I really could have picked any date. Uh, it's very interesting. It's something that I didn't even realize was a thing. Uh, it was one of the most deadly, if not the most deadly volcanic eruptions in human history. As I said, it happened in Iceland, but it spread all over the globe. Um, first of all, though, in Iceland, it killed about 50% of the livestock, which led to a famine, which killed a quarter of the population of Iceland. Uh, so that was pretty immediate. Um, but then it also went on to possibly cause droughts in India and Africa, which led to millions of more deaths, uh, as well as crop failures in Europe and air pollution. Uh, and this deadly gas in the form of this deadly gas. So all, to all told, it killed probably over 6 million people globally. What? Yeah, 6 million. That's a lot. It was a pretty big volcanic eruption. 1783, that's <laughs> quite a bit. Holy crap. Now, and the cloud was sulfur dioxide that Oh, that'll do it. And also the hydrogen, the hydrogen fluoride apparently I think killed most of the people in Iceland, but the sulfur dioxide is what drifted into Europe to start murdering people there. But yeah, and oh. it also caused severe global temperature change. Uh, it was the hottest summer on record, followed by really violent winter with hail and storms and all that good stuff, which probably led to more deaths. It was the longest period of below zero temperatures in New England. Hmm. Oh yeah, wow. the U.S. the U.S. area just had some severe weather. <laughs> like, they don't, I, I didn't find a whole lot of talk about 
deaths that resulted in it, but I think people were just dying left and right anyway at that point. So a bad winter in 1783 was no joke. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's yeah. what I'm saying. But so th- so this gas release it wasn't part of like a, a pyroclastic flow. It was just this, just this gas that came out and just went it's a bubble all of over gas. the place. Yeah, wow. like a volcanic fart, silent but deadly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It wasn't too, too soon either. <laughs> too <laughs> Volcanoes soon. are no joke. Got superheated right. gas that kills people. It's not just the yeah. lava and the ash. I mean, it's, it's usually the gas. Even if it's not poisonous gas, if it's superheated, it's like your lungs explode, you know. Well, let's move on. Um, have you guys heard that uh-huh. the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has released their 1,200-page uh, report evaluating evidence for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. Now, the last time you led us into one of these and we <laughs> all made lighthearted jokes about how boring the topic was, we got a bunch of angry letters from botanists. So, no, Steve, not going to fall for it. This sounds fascinating. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, but like mm. last time, I convinced you how cool botany was. And eh. now I want to convince you how cool osteoarthritis is. more letters. Oh, boy. <laughs> um so osteoarthritis <laughs> is uh, essentially degenerative arthritis of a joint, mainly from wear and tear, but there are other, obviously, biological factors involved. And so knee osteoarthritis, very common. Um, you know, as people get into their 40s and 50s, they uh, their knees start to ache, you know, and, and they just wear out. They don't really last 80 years, unfortunately. There are lots of potential treatments for osteoarthritis, including uh, many that are not evidence-based. This report is interesting for a number of reasons, not just for the specific recommendations that are made. Harriet Hall writes about this on science-based medicine, and I I recommend that for those who are interested. But I just want to highlight some of the interesting things. First of all, it shows that science-based practitioners actually care about evidence, despite all of the propaganda about, oh, those doctors only want drugs and surgery. Here we have a uh, a major you know a, a professional organization in the United States dedicated to orthopedic surgery reviewing thousands of published studies putting out a 1200 page comprehensive report looking in depth into the evidence for many different approaches and here are the highlights of what they found where there was strong evidence you know for or against so glucosamine chondroitin you guys are familiar with this right this is a dietary supplement that has been and still is promoted, um, you know, has been for years for arthritis. What do you think they found? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> so it was one of the few things where there was strong evidence against its effectiveness. Glucosamine and chondroitin doesn't work. There have been large studies. Exercise, strong evidence for, in favor of it. Weight mm-hmm. loss, moderate evidence in favor of it. Acupuncture, what do you think they concluded? No evidence. Overwhelming evidence. (laughs) Strong evidence against its effectiveness. Hmm. So very nice to see that they took a a science-based approach to acupuncture research. It didn't fall for the bait and switch of, oh, it works like a placebo. You know, they didn't fall for that that business. And also, uh, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, strong evidence that they're effective. That's not surprising. And here's one, arthroscopy with lavage and debridement. Strong evidence against. Really? Yes. Yeah, so this, huh? So yeah. lavage is like just washing it out. So arthroscopy is, you know, putting the scope into the knee and looking around, you know, for a diagnostic. But if you 
take anything out, that it becomes a therapeutic procedure, right? That's debridement, you know, cutting away any fraying pieces of cartilage uh, and then washing out those pieces. That's the lavage part. So this is a pretty lucrative, popular procedure for orthopedists to do. And here they are, the official organization of orthopedists coming out with a statement saying there is strong evidence against the effectiveness of this procedure. This is something that we've written about on science-based medicine previously when the, the, a review came out, I think now about two years ago, showing that arthroscopy was not effective. And there was some pushback from some orthopedists. And we said, hey, this is the evidence, baby. This is This is what it shows. So it's nice now to see the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons Looking at the evidence and, and honestly saying, yep, our beloved procedure that we would love to have work doesn't work. Uh, so it's hard in, in the face of this, if you look at the bigger picture, it's hard to justify the typical knee-jerk criticisms that alternative medicine proponents have against mainstream medicine. <laughs> knee-jerk. Yeah, knee-jerk. That yeah. it's like oh, they only care about drugs and surgery. Well, here they are saying um, their favorite surgical procedure doesn't work. That they don't care about other things. Here they're strongly in favor of exercise, moderately in favor of weight loss, um, and that they're not uh, – they don't care about actually treating people. Well, this is – I think this shows their dedication to the evidence, to what actually works, regardless of what the modality is. And this is this is – what we see in mainstream medicine all the time. This is a Herculean effort and it's great document, but this is what we see all the time. You know, the academic professional uh, physicians looking at the evidence objectively and the chips fall where they may. And it's direct contradiction to all the anti-mainstream medicine conspiracy theories that you're going to hear from the alternative medicine side. So I thought that was worth pointing out. Also, Harriet pointed out something very interesting. Things like homeopathy didn't even make the list. It wasn't even worth their time to take a look at. Oh, awesome. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. I don't know if we'd be able to say that if this were British Academy of orthopedic surgeons, right? That probably would have made that list. Homeopathy probably would have, just yes. because homeopathy is more popular across the pond. Yeah. But Steve, did they mention why it wasn't on the list? No, just it didn't even didn't even make the radar. Just wasn't even yeah, not not mentioned one way or the other. Okay. Oh, hey, wait, wait! I would like a quickie with Bob right now. Really? Yes, right this moment. Thank you, Evan. I'm almost certain you will not regret this. This is your <laughs> quickie with Bob. Astronomers in Chile, guys, have discovered a new type of variable star. It was a pretty interesting story. Uh, they did detailed observations of 3,700 stars in a specific cluster over seven years um, and showed that they found 36 of these stars had very minute changes in their brightness of about only about a tenth of a percent over an hour or as much as over 20 hours. And uh, this is this is big news in, in the community because variable stars are in, are incredibly common. There's lots of different types of variable stars. And it's always interesting to, to add another one to the group. Actually, the list of, uh, of, t of variable stars, um, the types themselves, was much bigger than, than I remember them being. But just to break it down real quick, there's, there's two different main types of stars that are variable. There's the intrinsic and extrinsic. And it's kind of obvious what, they, what that means. The intrinsic stars that are variable are variable because of that's just the way they are. Something about their internal dynamics makes them makes the light output variable. Whereas the extrinsic the extrinsic stars, variable stars, are variable only because, you know, say something might move in front of them or or there might be some something in the way that changes the light that reaches the earth. 
So within these intrinsic stars, there's, there's just a few categories. There's the pulsating variables, there's the eruptives, and there's the cataclysmic or explosive variable stars. Th this new one that they found, I think, is pretty obvious that it's within the, the pulsating variable star category. Is there a throbbing category? <laughs> no, just that. <laughs> is there a grooving category? So like I said, these variables are most certainly, they'll be within the pulsating variety. They haven't actually named this type of variable yet, but I'm sure it's going to be within hmm. that, that category. And they're not sure why they pulsate either, basically because current models say that they should not be variable. So this is a, it was a real surprise that these, that, that these varied so much. And, but one clue that they found is that many of these variables rotate very, very fast. Yeah, more that than, seems pretty telling. Yeah, more than 50% mm. of their critical velocity, in fact. And the critical velocity wow. is a velocity that if they, if they reached 100%, they would actually start throwing off mass. So they're, so they're spinning very, very fast. <laughs> and uh, the spinning might, may have an effect on the dynamics of, of their interiors, which then would result in, in the variability of their light output. So, uh, so keep an eye on it. I'm curious to see what they're going to call it, and uh, and and you know what more they can determine um, about these types of stars based on uh, on, on the, this, these studies that they're these very detailed studies that they're doing. So uh, that's all I got, guys. This has been your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. Thanks, Bob. Okay, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about a major Supreme Court case regarding patenting genes. Yes, you are correct, Steve. There was a huge decision that just happened in the Supreme Court on uh, June 13th. The Supreme Court ruled that uh, companies, particularly Myriad Genetics in this case, cannot patent a human gene. So in this specific case, it was this company, Myriad Genetics, which was one of the patent holders on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Now, astute listeners might recall that we were recently talking about these very genes in the case of Angelina Jolie, yeah. who came out and said that she had the mutation in her BRCA gene that said she was much, much, much more likely to get breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And so she had her breast removed. Now, we also mentioned that Angelina Jolie had spoken briefly about the fact that not everyone has access to the genetic testing required to find out if you have the mutation in order to get the life-saving operations you would need. Well, the reason why many people don't have access to this genetic testing is because Myriad Genetics was one of the patent holders, and, and they were the only company that was allowed to perform this testing on these genes. So if you wanted to find out if you had the mutation, you had to go through Myriad Genetics, and that increases the price dramatically. So they could charge thousands of dollars to people who wanted the testing. What this ruling means in this specific case, it's a huge win for women, particularly because this means that you women can go get genetic testing anywhere to find out if they have this mutation. They don't have to go through Myriad in order to find out. So now you have companies competing against each other, prices go down, et cetera, et cetera, and more lives are saved because of it. So that's one result of this. Um, and one of the reasons why women's rights groups were a huge part of the uh, lawsuit that led to the Supreme Court decision it was a unanimous decision. The case was led by uh, the ACLU um, representing women's rights groups and as well as scientists and other 
interest groups. But also scientists win from this case because it means that uh, any scientist can now pursue research on the, these genes, where prior to this only Myriad and the other patent holders would technically be able to do that. Basically, the court ruled that you can't patent a human gene. However, they did leave it open that you could possibly patent a gene that had been fiddled with. Yeah. So uh, if you come up with yeah. your own gene, like a, a synthetic gene, like cDNA, C, cDNA, that could still be eligible for a patent. Uh, but because Myriad, the company, did not actually create anything, they just researched the gene, they're not allowed to patent it. Yeah. So, so. products of nature cannot be patented. And what this decision was exploring specifically was how much modification is necessary before a product of nature is an innovation. Uh, yeah, this that needed to yeah. be explored for the in, for this specific case of genes. And it seems like mm-hmm. everyone, pop, with the possible exception of Myriad, is happy about this decision. This is I've seen nothing but universal praise for this decision. Myriad shouldn't be too sad. Their stock rose that day <laughs> that as a right? result. Yeah, they have been fighting this fade. for a yeah. very long time. So this is a huge loss for them. But it's it is a great gain for humanity. We're yeah, literally talking humanity. about lives being yeah. saved and more Absolutely. research being done. Yeah, it, it does so seem this, it is a good thing. It does seem there's going to be lots of benefits. But what about the idea? The the one negative thing that I've heard, I've seen in a couple of places was that some people are afraid that companies like Myriad, of course, will scale back investment because they're not going to be rewarded uh, with patents for this. So I just wonder how much of a genuine concern that aspect of this is. Consider how much research is done by private companies compared to the huge amount of research that's currently being done through government institutions and universities. Private companies have always focused on what's going to make the most money. And that's why we have uh, government funding for scientific endeavors. There's one other thing I wanted to mention, a bit of uh, myth busting. This this thing was going around that uh, Scalia doesn't believe in genetics or in molecular biology. So uh, it was a unanimous decision, but Justice Scalia wrote a separate thing, ruling. Separate uh, opinion. Opinion. Thank you. Opinion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scalia wrote a separate opinion uh, saying that he uh, agrees to vote with the majority, but he does not agree with one part of the opinion that has no effect on his final vote. What he said was um, that he wouldn't sign on to part 1A and some portions of the rest of the opinion going into fine details of molecular biology because he can't affirm those details on his own knowledge or his own belief. So part 1A is just a, a list of basic facts about DNA, about genetics. Uh, it's all kind of just basic level genetic stuff. So was he basically saying I don't know what this is? Yeah, you know, so some and therefore I can't really Some people say were were taking uh that he wouldn't affirm those details on his own knowledge or his own belief to mean that he didn't believe in genetics or he didn't know about genetics and so he didn't believe in them something like that. But I've heard from lawyers who have said that this is a bit of legal speak in a way that there's this sort of ongoing argument on whether or not they should in- judges should include basic information that's not necessary to the final ruling. And so that's kind of what he was saying is that this chunk, I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to 
sign my name on this and say that as a justice, I approve of this because I have no idea. I'm not a scientist and it has nothing to do with the case. He's being a legal stickler, not yes. a science denier. Exactly. Oh, that's, okay. That, right. That's what I'm hearing from, from lawyers and makes it makes sense to me. So. And that's kind of his mm-hmm. shtick too, yeah. is to be a legal stickler. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Bob, can you explain to me why my toes occasionally itch? Ew. <laughs> Bugs, probably. Well, guys, uh, last May, at the end of last May, uh, the uh, the issue of Nature, they discussed the uh, the first census, the very first census of skin dwelling fungi. That that's fungi. Well, there's there's three ways to pronounce it, as far as I can uh, tell. Fungi. Fung, <laughs> fungi. 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 Those are the three that I came the across. The fungi is the only one that works with that mushroom walks into a bar joke. Oh, okay. What about what about so fungi? That's actually my preferred pronunciation, and I didn't find it. So whatever, I'll just go with oh. I'll just go with one of the ones that I found. So their study reveals <laughs> there's a fungus among us. Okay, somebody had to say it. It's out of the way. I said it. So actually, it re- it reveals <laughs> that there's a little variation. There's very little variation in the fungal communities on our bodies, except for our feet, which calls home to. 80 to 100 different types of fungus. They're just like all wow. over the place down there. So for just for a, a quick high-level uh-huh. refresher, uh, fungi are the, the third type of multicellular organisms. They're neither plant nor animals. Uh, one major difference between them and the other two is that their cell walls contain chitin. Uh, that's, the, uh, that's like the exoskeleton of uh, crabs and lobsters or, or even the beaks of squid. They're made of chitin. Uh, fungi play a pivotal role in decomposing organic matter and cycling uh, nutrients in the environment. And they also appear to be inordinately fond of feet. So here's a, a quick quote uh, from the study. Uh, Human skin surfaces are complex ecosystems for microorganisms, including fungi, bacteria, and viruses, which are known collectively as the skin microbiome. So I was just, I was surprised, like I said, that this initial study was the first of its kind. It seems, I guess, in terms of you know human cohabitation, that bacteria and viruses get all get all the press and all the research dollars. So one reason why the lowly fungus, I guess, may have been neglected is that it's notoriously difficult to culture. I didn't know that. Unlike bacteria, which is really easy, culturing a fungus uh, from say a, the toenail can take weeks weeks for it. And yet, and yet, it's hard to kill when you want to get <laughs> yeah. rid of it. Right. So, so how did they, how did they do it? They looked at, they looked at the DNA, of course. They took 10 volunteers and they swabbed 14 sites on their bodies, including, uh, taking toenail clippings, apparently. Uh, they then put them in a DNA sequencer, which of course is, uh, one of the key technologies advanced by leaps and bounds, uh, by the Human Genome Project. Um, they used m- these molecular tags that stick only to the fungal DNA. So they wouldn't have to worry about all the human DNA and the bacterial DNA and viral DNA that 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 was mixed into the sample. So now they have this pure sample of just just fun, uh, fungus DNA. They then examined the tiny bits of fungal DNA uh, called the phylogenetic markers to tally up all the different types of, of fungal species. And bam, they were done. They had they had a tally of all the different types of species. So if you look most anywhere on the head or the torso, you're you're likely to find one genus, and that's called Malassezia. Uh, different areas have different species, uh, though, that like the crease behind your ear or, or on your forehead. There's a little variation there. Surprisingly, your hands have tons of bacteria, but very few fungal communities. So your feet, though, is a, it's a completely different ecosystem. Um, on your, on your toenails alone, there's 40 different, uh, fungi varieties. 60 between your toes and 80 live on the bottom of, of your heel, which I think would, I, I wouldn't think that would be the most plentiful spot. I would think like between your toes would have more, but apparently 
there's lots of them on, on the bottom of your heel. So, so why is how come? Why, why is this so? And it, gravity. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, <laughs> it's not hard to imagine one one reason, right? Your feet are are often on contact with surfaces that fungi like to hang out on, like your socks or locker room floors. <laughs> I never walk barefoot at, at the gym. Uh, never would do it. So, oh, so also gosh, your your so, feet. So I didn't know this. Your feet are cooler than other parts of your body, and and fungi like cooler places apparently to hang out. Um, so, so should we all be grossed out? Are you guys like really grossed out about yeah, this stuff? I, uh, I, Rebecca, been, you're grossed, more out? grossed out about. It takes more than that to gross out Steve. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't think Steve would be, but I'm not. I'm not. I've had my head inside of a corpse. Cool. Um, uh, okay, human corpse. Oh, wait, a, wait, a human corpse. I, yeah, of course. So has everyone uh, who has gone through medical school. You, you put your head in the corpse. Well, you got to get into the anatomy. I mean, you got to you know you're dissecting something. They so you get so grossed out in your first year of medical school, you're basically done getting grossed out for life. Yeah, yeah. totally desensitized. I, uh, I, I don't find what you've said so gross, Bob, but yeah. when you were talking, I was thinking of that toenail fungus uh, <laughs> commercial where, oh, the, yeah. where the, the germ like lifts critters. up the yeah, 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 and then climbs inside, and that's like the worst, oh. worst commercial ever made. Oh, my Nasty. God. I remember that. Something about detaching a toenail. Yes, I, I cringe every yeah. time I saw that. Nothing to do with, with the fungus or anything, but it's just lifting that toenail Yeah, like was the fungus nasty. didn't help. Yeah, right, but, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't gross me out to thinking that there's, you know, potentially, you know, uh, well over a hundred different types of these guys all over us. I, it's good. It's good that we're colonized by these critters because they're they're likely to prevent other nasty guys from taking hold on our skin. So it's good that they're there. Likewise, this, this research can actually help improve our treatment for skin disease and maybe even help with some types of cancers. Some people were saying so. So I say embrace the the fungi living on your skin. You really don't have much of a choice until we replace them all with nanobots. All right, thanks, Bob. Evan, you're going to tell us about a fake Chinese alien. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> now that could mean <laughs> several different things. I'll I'll do my best to clarify. Now there are times when news outlets totally, totally botch their headlines. Right? I mean, really botch. No, we've, we've talked about some real doozies on the show, but rarely do we give them credit when they actually get it right. Let's give the Telegraph its due because they got this headline spot on. They wrote, Chinese farmer jailed for making rubber alien. That kind of says it all. Okay. <laughs> so it's being reported out of the Shandong province that uh, local per- police recently arrested someone named Mr. Li, a farmer slash alien enthusiast by day and an alien enthusiast farmer slash farmer by night. And... Here are his versions of the event. This is Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee's a pseudonym, probably, by the way. He said, I was setting an electrical trap for rabbits by the Yellow River when I saw a bright light. Above my bike, a UFO was floating. One by one, five aliens came down, but one of them stumbled onto one of my rabbit traps and was electrocuted. The others went back into their ship and flew away. So that's his story. Quite a tale he's got there. So this alien from who knows how far away, from another solar system, flies here in super advanced technology and then (laughs) dies in a rabbit trap. And his friends leave him behind. And they leave him behind. Was he rabbit shaped? Maybe he was was a rabbit, like from another dimension. Well, then rabbits look an awful lot like 
little grays with Chinese accentuations around the eyes yes. and head and stuff. But plus, <laughs> plus only mice, anyway. only mice are from other dimensions, Rebecca. But how did he go about backing up his claim? All right. Well, he does what any true believer does, and he posts pictures of the ET on the internet. And in three days. These pictures happen to go viral. So after five days of having posted the pictures, the local police show up at his door and he's taken in for questioning. Mm -hmm. Now, during the questioning, Mr. Lee admitted, willingly or otherwise, that the whole thing was a hoax. Shock, shocked. He made an alien. He constructed it himself out of this gluey rubber sort of substance uh, tied together with ropes and uh, other things. And... You know, if you he he drew his inspiration from the Simon Pegg film Paul. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Paul, yeah, the one where they go to yes. Comic Con, right? Yes, right. and the alien does a little bit, sort of, kind of look like that, I suppose. But you're right, Evan. the The uh, alien head looks Chinese. It, it, does. it does. So I mean, it's his <laughs> cultural bias leaking through in his sculpture. And he's not aware of it, but to these Western, you know, American eyes, it has this, it looks like something that, it, like a piece of art that a Chinese person would create. Right. You know, it's exactly. not just the eyes, it's the mouth, it's everything, you know, it's just it's a subtle sort of oriental appearance to it, uh, which is always, I think, a, a very telling sign to look for when people are imagining or faking alien phenomena and their cultural biases come through, and of course, we're you're much more attuned to them when it's from a from another culture. But why did he? Why did he do it? Why do you think he did it? Well, he says it was with the intent of helping more people believe in aliens, which yeah. is Weird. an interesting way to go about doing that. Uh, I suppose um, he claims that, and these are his words again. It's still disputed whether or not UFOs and aliens exist, but we believe—not sure what he means by we—we we believe they do, and we want to expand our group. I don't know what group he's part of, uh, and make more people believe that aliens do exist. So that's is, was this him saying approach. this, or was this the government that saying him. that he said that? Uh, that is the report from the Telegraph, say, uh, which is quoting him as saying that. Hmm. Who knows? Yeah, you, who who really knows? Yeah. It's for the conspiracy th- conspiracy theorists, <laughs> I guess, to to, to sort of figure. Well, out. you know, now, I mean, you don't have to stretch far to come up with a conspiracy involving the Chinese government making a guy say something. <laughs> I mean, making a Chinese <laughs> prisoner say something that they wanted to say. That's um, true. yeah, my mind. All, yeah, all especially if off. they wanted. As soon as the government got a hold of him, I'm thinking, well, nothing he says now, really, <laughs> you know, whatever. Even if it was just a case of they they wanted to trump up the charge a bit so that they didn't look like they were just hassling some farmer. Now they've got, like, a cult that they can pin yeah. on him. Yeah, you know, yeah. Because they hate, but they hate the cults. He, uh, Mr. Lee spent five days incarcerated. If the crime was fabricating lies and disrupting normal social order. Oh boy! Wow. Yeah that that doesn't sound too Orwellian or yeah disrupting the social order that yeah really that's, Orwellian. That's scary. I agree. Now, guys, to wrap this up, I'll say that the rubber alien was examined by scientists and deemed to be a hoax. The dead giveaway is when they broke open the alien and pulled out a slip of paper with a fortune. (laughs) And and it read, help, I'm being held prisoner in a Chinese bakery. Mm -hmm. And your lucky numbers are 4, 14, 22, 31, and 49. So that sort of sealed the deal. The joke fails, though, on the fact that fortune cookies aren't Chinese. Yeah. (laughs) No, that enhances the joke. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
All right, well, Evan, you also have to tell us about Who's That Noisy? I will do that. Now, um, what we'll do is next week we're going to reveal last week's winner. We're recording a little ahead of schedule because of we're on our TAM recording schedule. So we're going to have to get caught up on the Who's That Noisies towards right. the end. We yeah. might all Which be we... dead right now. <laughs> it's true. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Another volcano you know, might spew mm-hmm. sulfur dioxide or whatever the hell Could is going to come out of it. However, we do have a puzzle for this week. So that will be this week's Who's That Noisy is a puzzle. And here we go. So there is this machine, okay? Now, this machine does one thing. It shuffles playing cards. However, this machine always rearranges cards in the same way relative to the original order of the cards. Okay, we're talking about a deck of playing cards here. Now, all of the hearts arranged in order from ace to king were put into the machine. The cards were shuffled, and then they were put into the machine again. After the second after the second shuffling, the cards were in the following order. 10, 9, queen, 8, king, 3, 4, ace, 5, jack, 6, 2, 7. So you need to tell us now, what order were the cards in after the first shuffle? It's very tricksy. Mm-hmm. It is tricksy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if uh, I don't know if Bilbo would have gotten that in the cave while he was dueling it out uh, with, of wits not, with Gollum. Not without a pen but... and paper, I don't think. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so or a quill think about and parchment. that. Uh, yes, of course, Middle Earth and all. WTN at theskepticsguide.org or suforums.com is the forum's website. So think about it. Give us your best answer, and good luck to everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. We do have one email for this week. This one comes from Mark Dennehy from Melbourne. And Mark writes, I have been listening to the show for four years. And although I have always been a skeptic with the C, I have learned a great deal from your show. I would like to hear the rogue's view on whether science has the potential to explain the physical world in such a way that we understand everything. Is there a limit to what we can comprehend? For example, a dog has no concept of quantum gravity and wouldn't ask the question of himself. Is space-time fundamentally continuous or discrete? We have gone from asking ourselves how to grow food to why is there far more matter than antimatter in the observable universe. Our brain appears finite in capacity, so I would assume that would limit our ability to understand the world around us. Reaching a limit at some stage seems inevitable. Or will our brains develop as we need to solve increasingly more difficult questions? After all, our brains appear to need, our brains appear not to need to store every bit of information we discover, perhaps more of the ability to solve a problem and the capacity to grasp the variables at that time. I could be wrong though. Your opinions would be greatly appreciated and interesting. Thank you, Mark. So mm. what do you guys think? I already learned everything there is to know when <laughs> I was a teenager, so. Yeah. So you're done. QED. You maxed out. Mm-hmm. I think we're definitely not smart enough to understand everything. I mean, there's always going to be, I think there's always going to be some ways to explain aspects of nature that, that, that could be beyond us. It's amazing that, we, that we've come this far, but I think as we progress, I think there's definitely areas that will hit that will be just, just it'll be similar to a, a dog trying to think about quantum gravity. But the thing is that, that uh, it's not just our brains anymore. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll have, you know, AIDS, we'll have, 
in, we'll have supercomputers and eventually even artificial intelligence that, that will help us and work with us and probably eventually completely outclass us in, in understanding this stuff. So, um, and then there, there will also be, I believe, uh, you know, uh, we'll not evolve our brains, but we'll, we'll artificially enhance our brains. There's lots of ways to, we'll you, probably to, do, to both. do that. So, yeah. So, so I think there's, there, there's probably be very little that, um, that we won't eventually figure out. Who knows how long it'll take, but I think, uh, we will have, we, we have and we will have the ability to understand uh, as much as can be understood. Well, yeah, I think there's two ways to look at this question. One is what you were discussing, Bob, which is the finite limitations of the human brain. I agree that there are probably limitations to our ability to understand the universe, but we will augment, evolve, supplement our brains as technology progresses. That There's no, I guess, theoretical limit to that. So um, through those tools, I think we, we you know that 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 limitation will, is something that we can surpass. The other way to think about that, though, about just um, cognitive limitations, I'm not sure. I've never liked the analogy to the dog. Maybe Why? it's apt, but I'm not sure because it seems like there is not just a quantitative but a qualitative difference between a dog and a human brain. That maybe once you have the ability to think about things in a certain level, then you're there. Then, then you know, you, you that gives you qualitative abilities, you know, of investigation, of asking questions, of exploration, right? So it's not just that, you know, we're a certain amount far more intelligent than a dog, therefore we could understand a certain amount more about the universe. Uh-huh. It's that we can engage in a kind of introspection and exploration and questioning that a dog can't even engage in at all. Yeah, but, I mean, there are apes who can engage in a certain level of that much more than a dog but less than humans so i mean surely we can imagine a level up from us right where there's something we're missing like there's mm-hmm. there are very few things that humans are capable of that apes or other animals can do in some capacity i you know i agree that is possible i'm not convinced that that has to be the case though that's my point it's possible that uh, our current abilities are limited and we won't be able to figure out the universe but it's also possible that we have the tools necessary and now it's just a matter of applying them so so we've passed some sort of cognitive threshold where we yeah, could eventually yeah. figure out everything but so what you're saying is that we we could pretty much figure out most anything but what I'm taking away from that though is that it might it might be so fiendishly difficult that it would take that it could take an extremely long time for us to fi- to f- finally wrap our heads around something. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So 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 far we're talking about the one approach to this problem, which is the the human capacity. And again, there's a couple of ways to look at that, which we explored. The other way to look at this question is: Is it even theoretically possible to understand everything about the universe? There may be limitations to the ability of any intelligent creature to gain certain bits of knowledge. And I think, first of all, I think that 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 is absolutely true. There are things that we will never know because the information is lost. It's just lost to the universe. But it depends on what you mean by understanding everything about the universe. That's what I thought too, yeah. Yeah. So like what what color was a certain dinosaur? You know, again, 
that, that information right. may be lost to the universe. But let's put that aside. So that we'll say, okay, obviously we can't know about information that's lost to the universe. You could frame questions about the universe that cannot be explored by science. Yeah, and I would um, add to that, Steve, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chaotic systems, you know, sensitive dependence. Yeah. Can, those things are inherently unpredictable no matter how smart, no matter what technology you have. So I would add that, but that's kind of a, maybe a, a trivial addition, an obvious addition. Right. And there may be other questions like what happened before the Big Bang that we just – we may never figure out a way to, to, to answer that question. But of course, you know, we've, even with that, we've already started reaching back before the Big Bang and making some observations. Inferences, so. yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, we've, we started to make some inferences, but there, but there are maybe limits. Yeah, so, I agree with that. I, I feel though that in general, I, I, I think that there's also a difference between can we find out everything there is to know about the things we know about, and then <laughs> is there. If there's a if there's a gap in our understanding that we can identify, will we have the tools to fill that gap? But also, are there are we constantly surrounded by gaps that we're not even ever going to realize just because of the limits of our own yeah. senses and things? Um, and I think that right. that's a possibility as well. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of the, uh, the things that we don't know, we don't know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, well, let's go on to our interview. We are joined now by Daniel Loxton. Daniel, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Hi, guys. Great to be back. Hey. Hey, Daniel. Uh, hey. <laughs> how have you been? Uh, busy, busy, uh, working away. Daniel is a skeptic and an author. Uh, you publish, or you're you're uh, responsible for illustrating the Junior Skeptic, which is part of Skeptic Magazine. Yeah, and I, I do the writing and research for that thing too, of course. You, of course, are most well known for your prior interview on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> people showed to me on, on the street about that. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> uh, but you have been on many other skeptical podcasts as well for good reason, for example. And I understand from reading your Wikipedia page that you used to be a shepherd. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a shepherd for about 10 years, uh, just up on the BC side of the Alaska Panhandle. That sounds like exciting work. Uh, it could be. It could be. I always uh, the old the old line about war always sounded sort of familiar. That it's long periods of boredom punctuated by periods of terror. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that expression. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was you know really long days. We we're out with the sheep for about sixteen hours a day, and and a lot of the time it was just kind of nice. The sheep eat the grass, and everything's cool. And every once in a while you've got an emergency that you have to deal with really quickly. Now, Dan, you have a couple of uh, children's books that you've published that we've spoken to you about previously. Evolution which uh, yeah. I greatly enjoyed, and Ankylosaur Attack, Tales of Prehistoric Life. And then there's a sequel to that one out now, uh, Pterosaur Trouble, which is just a couple of months old. And I'm just wrapping up the third one in that series, uh, although that won't be out till next spring, Plesiosaur Peril. Hmm, I see a pattern there. Nice alliteration. Yeah, nice. I love alliteration. <laughs> uh, but, I, I, I'm getting hassled a lot for not making it uh, pterosaur trouble with, with P's to start both words, but uh, mm-hmm. I didn't think my publisher would go for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have you on tonight to talk about your latest book, Abominable Science. Yeah. This is a book I co-authored with paleontologist Donald Prothero, uh, and it's a great big, thick, uh, straight-down-the-line skeptics book uh, for Columbia University Press on the topic of legendary monsters, cryptids. Cryptids, like the animals that don't exist. Yeah, that's right. The subtitle of the book, Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids. Don and I have somewhat diverging views on, on the 
value of cryptozoology and the likelihood of these creatures existing. Or not so much the likelihood. I mean, let's, we spent 400 pages explaining that probably none of them exist, but we'd both like them to, and uh, I am not personally convinced that it's all that damaging that, that so uh, people believe them. You, you say probably do not exist. So what kind of thread can you offer people who do have some lingering hope that something out there does exist? Like, what, what could they attach on to? Uh, well, some of the more obscure ones, uh, the, the real kind of headliners like Bigfoot and Nessie in particular, I think we can pretty much, pretty much close the case on Nessie. You know, there are bound to be animal discoveries, uh, in the decades ahead. Some of them still could be large vertebrates. There have been attempts to, to estimate how many large vertebrates might still be out there. Um, the ocean is very big. Uh, so if you're looking for cryptids, I would, I would maybe keep my eye on the, on the sea. Does one stand out, uh, of all the ones that you cover? In the book that are most, that is most likely to actually exist? Cadrosaurus is my personal favorite. Um, I, I don't know how likely it is to exist, uh, but I, uh, you know, it's, it's a large marine cryptid. Uh, it's a, a North American west, it's like 80 feet long. It's a, <laughs> it's a big sea serpent. It's, it's the west coast, uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, iteration of the Great Atlantic, uh, sea serpent. And, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a big one. Uh, and it, it, uh, it's named for a bay right here in Victoria. So as a Victoria boy, I was always uh, extremely keen on uh, searching for Cadbrosaurus and particularly because my parents were witnesses of Cadbrosaurus. So, so that planted the cryptozoology bug, uh, deeply mm-hmm. when I was a child. Where, did any of the themes crop up? Um, cause th- these are all individual legends. Bigfoot again, Nessie. Sea monsters, lake monsters, etc. Did did anything surprising crop up as a as a recurring theme in, when researching the book? Well, I've been I've been looking at this these topics for a really long time, so there there isn't that much that surprises me. Um, but I think that readers will be surprised by a number of the themes that come up. One uh, recurring theme that that uh, I come back to again and again in my work for Junior Skeptic uh, and also uh, for Abominable Science is that. Uh, very typically, uh, these mysteries, they have this huge kind of edifice, this famous mountain of evidence for Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster or whatever, that is intimidating to, to a newcomer uh, approaching that mystery. You know, there are hundreds of books sometimes or decades of research. There are, you know, there are hundreds of personalities involved. Uh, and it, it looks like a lot, uh, but if you just clear all of it away and just go down to the, to the original roots of the legend, very often they're just, you know, the whole thing is just an edifice built on sand. The, the roots are rotten. Uh, and it becomes clear pretty quickly if you, if you can just, uh, take apart the sort of artificial chronology that grows up around these things, put everything in the, in the order in which they, they come into the historical record. A lot of it becomes clear right away. Mm-hmm. Um, another surprising theme, uh, I think will take many people off guard, skeptics not so much, uh, is that, there is a long-standing relationship between cryptozoology and uh, creationism. Um, a lot of the cryptids are primarily sought, uh, they're primarily funded, they're primarily advocated by, by creationists who, who hope that by discovering these creatures they can bring down evolution once and for all. Why, why they think that is a complete mystery. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They're, really gra- they're really grasping at straws there, aren't they? <laughs> Right, because there's some kind of impossible hybrid or something. Is that why? Well, you know, if if Bigfoot turns out to have angel DNA, uh, I guess that, <laughs> that could be a problem for standard biology. But you know, like if a if a sauropod dinosaur showed up in the Congo somewhere, 
that really does nothing to evolution at all. Yeah. You know, like uh, you know, why why is a sauropod more damaging than the crow in your backyard, who is actually a surviving dinosaur that we know about, right. <laughs> or you know, coelacanths or crocodiles or sharks or you know horseshoe crabs or any of these creatures it's a, it's a yeah. forlorn forlorn hope that uh, that this would be a game game ender for evolution is it it's just a, a a simplistic notion that anything that shows that scientists were wrong calls into question evolution or whatever scientific theory they don't like uh yeah i th- <laughs> basically i think that's it you know they they're looking for kind of smoking gun uh, evidence against evolution when what they should be doing is is over the course of decades slowly chipping away at their own research program and, and building a case for their own for their own position but but uh yeah they they think that uh you know one smoking gun's gonna gonna kill the enemy i agree they're always looking for that single stroke that will completely and utterly slay evolution. <laughs> That's easy. Yeah, yeah right, the problem yeah. is that the problem is they're confusing the million little pictures with the one big picture, you know. You could take out a little picture, but you're not taking out the big picture. Although the only the, there are potentially pieces of evidence that could do that if they found ironclad evidence for, you know, the the iconic horse in the Cambrian, yep. yeah. you know, mm-hmm. then that would be certainly a massive problem for yeah, it's certainly fossil possible. evidence for evolution, yeah. But that's it's like they're not even thinking about that. They look at this little stuff, these little arguments between scientists that are that are yeah. it's good science, but it's not going to damage evolution at all. I, you know, I, I, these uh, kind of creation-oriented cryptozoology people are not typically scientists. You know, they're 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 people from just kind of general backgrounds. Uh, so, in in one sense, we can kind of forgive them for not not. You know, framing this in really scientific terms, and and I try to be generous <laughs> with that sort of thing because I'm not a scientist myself. You know, the book hammers some of these guys uh, mostly in passages that were drafted by Don originally uh, as a credential paleontologist. He's he's uh, uh, sensitive to credential mongering, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I I'm an artist. Uh, I'm not I'm not a scientist, so I try not to be too heavy-handed about that kind of thing. But you know, when you when you've got people who are sort of presenting themselves as scientists, uh, who in fact are not, who are, you know, they have degrees in divinity or something like that, you know, it's a it's a problem in terms of uh, the integrity of the case they're making to the public. Daniel, was there what what's like the most obscure cryptid you you covered in the book? What's one I haven't heard about, even as someone who's been reading skeptical literature for decades? The book grew quite long. Okay, so it was originally contracted for something <laughs> like two hundred pages. It's over four hundred. Uh, Columbia University Press wow. has been very generous about the whole thing. It's it's full color throughout. It's uh, you know it's they've let us you know really make a lot of room for for endnotes or something like sixty pages of endnotes and citations. Even at that, we had to cut at least a couple of chapters. Uh, we cut the chapter on the chupacabra, and we also cut the chapter on lake monsters uh, for length. And uh, on the cutting room floor went one of my own favorite cases, one of my favorite obscure cryptids, which is the Thetis Lake monster. This is another local local mystery here in Victoria, which mm. uh, I was able to get pretty much to the bottom of. So it's one of my favorite cases because it makes me look look fairly good. <laughs> What's it? What was it called again? Uh, it's it's the Thetis Lake monster, and it's essentially uh, the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon. Gilman uh, lives in a tiny artificial reservoir lake here in sunny British Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, uh-huh. It's just it's a really small lake. It's like a you know it's just it's twenty acres or something. It's but there's there's apparently a uh, primordial fish man living in the lake, 
you know, that case, like like many of them, again, uh, when you get to the roots of the mystery, they turn out to be really really shallow, uh, really uh, rotten. And in this case, there are hardly any eyewitness uh, accounts of this creature. And when I tracked down one of the original eyewitnesses, he just plain told me it was it was a hoax. They made it up. Oh, my God. Ouchie. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. Nobody goes to the roots. They, uh, uh, I was the first person in decades to talk to this guy. And that's the case for all these mysteries. You know, they, uh, people, they, they look at the, the mountain of evidence and they don't look at the roots of the case. Yeah. The, the mountain of evidence is just all confirmation bias and just mythology, really. When, once you've got the, the, these ideas kind of out in the wild, uh, they take off under their own power and people just copy one from another and the literature grows, uh, you know, plagiaristically very often. It's kind of the fox terrier thing. They just borrow one, one source to the next. So, Daniel, I understand you are going to be at TAM this year. I will be. I'll be back at, at Skepticism's big event this year. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, my wife's coming down with me again this year. And, awesome. And having missed a year, it was uh, it was really, uh, you know, it's it's fun to follow the hashtag on Twitter, you know, but it, it's, uh, it's a whole different experience from actually being there with, you know, one to 2,000 inquisitive, curious minds. It's always an awesomely fun event. And I also understand that you and I are going to be sitting on the same panel at some time during the weekend. I don't have to do the <laughs> final schedule. Yeah, it's, we're doing a, uh, a panel on the scope of skepticism, if I understand correctly. Yeah, it's going to be me, you, and Jamie, Ian Swiss, and uh, not exactly sure how we're going to frame it. I'm more interested in talking about skepticism as an intellectual discipline. Which is yeah. sort of the same thing as the scope of it, but I don't want to just, you know, that the scope argument's a little, uh, been played out a little bit in my opinion, but rather than rehashing anything that's been discussed before, I want to talk about like what, what skepticism can be, what it should be almost, you know, I as a, love that. Yeah, as a vibrant intellectual discipline. This is like, I guess my idea about where we really should be heading. Yeah. Well, I, I think you and I are probably on the same page about that. Um, you know, there, there's this distinction to be made that, that grassroots people overlook sometimes, I think, between, you know, a historical research program, a project which has been underway for a long time that, that some of us are, are working on, and then a kind of subculture that's grown up around that. And those yeah. are not the same. Um, but the part that I care about the most, like, it's fun to participate in a subculture, but I, you know, I'm a professional, I, I have... Uh, research priorities of my own, and I want to pursue those, and I want to talk to other serious-minded people who also want to pursue those uh, without being derailed too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree, and you know, it's I think it's a, a kind of a good problem to have that we've been we've grown so fast, so big that we've it's you know what skepticism is has kind of become this moving target, and it's good I think every now and then to take stock of of where we are and where we can go. You know, with this uh, with this movement. Yeah, I've I've never I've never been too sympathetic to the argument that it's kind of a shameful waste of time to do this navel gazing. I mean, serious disciplines they talk about what they do. You know, they we sit down, we talk about our practice and the roadmap for further development and so on like that. Yeah, there's a certain amount of time needs to be budgeted for introspection, especially in again in such an intellectual endeavor. We we can't proceed thoughtlessly because then what happens is, is that differences of opinion fester because no one's talking about it and and you, there are differences that people don't aren't even aware are there because no one's talking about it where everyone's just assuming that we are all on the same page even though there's lots of areas of potential disagreement 
Oh yeah. Yeah. In in, in recent years, I think uh, a lot of the problem, you know, if there's there's been you know a certain fierceness to these these scope debates in, in skeptical circles in recent years, and a lot of that I think is just because a lot of the grassroots people are actually in different movements and they don't know that. <laughs> you know, like there are these large traditional movements which are. Uh, in many cases, they're older than scientific skepticism. They have their own legacy. They have their own uh, goals, and in many cases, those are the those are the the goals that uh, that you know an individual might be most interested in. So yeah, just clarifying terms could be very very helpful. Yeah, it's actually a surprisingly it's a surprisingly complicated landscape. It is yeah. that I think a lot of people just see as this one big mishmash. And when in fact, <laughs> it's actually a, it's actually a pretty complicated, multifaceted movement, which I'm kind of fascinated in sort of the sociology of skepticism and how it overlaps and intersects with other related, similar rationalist movements. Um, and it's all, it's all a hundred percent ground up is the other thing. It's like, there's really, there's yeah. no one has their hand on the tiller at all. It really is completely <laughs> just like chaotic. Just um, and, and completely organic, you know. Sometimes I think each and every skeptic is is in their own movement. Yeah, right. It sometimes <laughs> feels that way. That's a good observation, Bob. Yep. You know, I've I've uh, uh, often talked about it being like a neighborhood. You know, of, uh, we we have our own property lines, we have our own fences, and and to some extent, the the better the fences, the the better the neighborhood can get along. You know, we can have barbecues in each other's backyards, share <laughs> cups of sugar, and things like that. If we're not constantly arguing over like whose pear tree is growing a branch over the other guy's fence, and, uh, mm-hmm. things reset. But what's fascinating to me is that you know th- those kind of na- those property lines, they emerge naturally over and over and over again. Generation after generation, it just turns out that people tend to break more on one side or the other of these various fences. Yeah, they're, they're kind of natural lines. They're not artificial yeah. at all yeah. because they do just sort of emerge, spontaneously merge out of just different ways of looking at skepticism. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the people who think that, uh, for example, religion is a very important topic to be discussed, uh, you know, a major area for criticism. Um, I have no particular problem with that. And, uh, and you know, the, the fact that they organize around that idea, it, uh, that seems awesome to me. Any any portfolio people want to naturally kind of congregate around uh, will tend to emerge in time. The less mm-hmm. conflict around that emergence, the better. Yeah, I mean, our, our approach here, you know, this is obviously my personal approach, but the SGU in general is that it's all good. It's really, I don't really <laughs> understand the reason for for any of the, uh, the, the cross criticism, it's like, okay, you know, however you want to slice out, you know, your approach to the skeptical movement, that's good for you. Go, go for it. Do it. Go. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Just basically. <laughs> erect your own tent and, you know, people will gather around the fire. Well, Daniel, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Las Vegas in July. Yeah. I, uh, I can't wait to see all you guys. Look forward to your, your book. So what your, the abominable science is, you can, I see that you can get it. You can order it now from Amazon. You can uh, pre-order it from Amazon. Yeah. It is officially out August 6th. Uh, but, uh, I would suggest that anybody attending TAM should swing by the Skeptic Society table. Uh, there's, there's a, uh, a possibility of a preview of the book. Awesome. Oh, great. Oh, cool. And you'll be there to sign them, of course. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, Don's going to be there. We're going to do a panel uh, Sunday morning talking about Bigfoot skepticism. But uh... All right. Thanks, Daniel.
Thanks, Daniel. Good talking to you guys. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Just have three regular old news items this week. No theme. Here we go. Item number one, new fossil evidence reveals the presence of kangaroo ancestors 25 million years ago in what is now Europe. Item number two, researchers find that male guppies can reproduce up to 10 months after they have died. And item number three, scientists have discovered a material that gets larger under pressure in apparent defiance of the laws of physics. Bob, why don't you go first? So material that gets larger under pressure. So instead of getting more dense and closer together, it's doing the opposite. Wow, that's messed up. Rearranges the bonds. I don't know. Um, that's pretty bizarre. I'm trying to figure out how that would work. Let me go to two. Um, male guppies can reproduce up to 10 months after they have died. So we're talking about zombie guppies with a good game. Is that it? Wow, that's, that's kind of bizarre. So if they're, so I mean, yeah, if, if they're, perhaps their, their sperm can last a really long time, um, and, and be used after the, the death of the rest of the body. The kangaroo ants has 25 million years in what is now Europe. Uh, something about that. I'm, Australia was isolated for for millions of years. This, I mean, I, I don't think you need to. Yeah, it's something that one's rubbing me the wrong way, uh, even more than those other ones. Uh, I'm going to say the kangaroos are fiction. Okay, Rebecca. That's where I was leaning to because, I mean, if that's true, that completely rewrites the history of not just kangaroos but all marsupials, right? I feel like that would be big, big news presence of kangaroo ancestors that could mean anything really though something really far back but i mean kangaroos and other marsupials evolved after australia broke off right my i think i think so i that that seems really suspect to me um the male guppies reproducing after they died it's not it doesn't surprise me that they could reproduce after they die i i, I can i can picture their sperm being somehow long-lived and being able to swim out and, and fertilize eggs. But 10 months! I didn't know that guppies could live for 10 <laughs> months. Like, let alone, That's a good point. Let alone their sperm. So the t the length of time there is what's really crazy. But I can I can buy it. The thing that gets larger under pressure for some reason I can completely believe that. I don't know <laughs> why. Like I, I guess I'm just I'm picturing. I don't know. In my head, I'm thinking of like non-Newtonian liquids and other other things that react weirdly. Yeah, those, in, those in, non um, non-intuitive ways when you interact with them. So that one I buy. So for me, it's between the guppies and the kangaroos. And I'm, I'm going to have to GWB on this one. Um, that's the kangaroo thing is just way too bizarro GWB. for me. All right. I'm going to say that's the Jay, the fiction. Hey guys. Hi, Jay. Hey, Jay. Jay, you've been so hey, quiet. You've been so quiet all show. What's going on? Really yeah. well behaved. I have been like, very contemplative. I liked everything I, you guys I said today. Like you agreed with absolutely everything? Uh-oh. Yeah. 
I don't trust you, Rebecca, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't here. I was, That's um, too easy. I was doing auditions for Ock, the skeptical caveman. How did it go? It took, it went great. It took a lot longer, but, uh, tonight was a very good night. Good. But in regards to these news items, the one about the new fossil evidenced, um, but the kangaroo ancestor. So the, so the, the key here is that they found a fossil that it was in Europe. That one I really I don't know, and I don't know if twenty five million years is way too long or way too short. Or it sounds sounds reasonable though. The second one, researchers uh, finding about the male guppies can reproduce ten months after they they've died. I agree with Rebecca. Like you know, okay, so maybe their corpse, of the guppy is there, and the sperm can last up to ten months. And that might even like be kind of a built in thing that they evolved to be able to do. You know, and as the uh, the carcass is there, something happens, and the, the sperm is able to feed off of it. I don't know. I mean, I've, I have no idea, but that's I don't know. It's it's weird, but I could see that happening. Um, and the last one about the scientists discovering this this material that gets larger under pressure. That one out of the three of them, I I, I really do believe is true. So now I'm down to the first two. All right, I'm going to say that the fossil evidence. One about the kangaroos is is false. And Evan, the kangaroo. I mean, right? We always think of kangaroo as an Australian or what is it? Your Australasia. I'll move on to the guppies. They can reproduce up to ten months after they have died. So you've got this dead guppy, and something perhaps comes along and is able to extract some thing from it. So it technically reproduce unless do guppies reproduce on their own are these one of these creatures that doesn't need a, a partner in order to 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 reproduce Can't i don't remember you. uh it's well it <laughs> seems unlikely the material that gets larger under pressure i don't know what it is i suppose i was thinking plasma but you know that's probably already well known the, the properties of plasma um but maybe rebecca was on to something there I get larger under pressure because I eat more when I'm stressed out. Hey, I was sure oh. that was going to turn into a dick joke. I was so sure. Of <laughs> <laughs> How did that not even happen? <laughs> Rebecca can't even believe no, it. No, I liked it because every everybody went there mentally. Everyone, I, I and he didn't yeah. even have to say anything. Everybody was like, "Here comes Jay's dick joke." Wow, you think I'm that de decultured? Is de-cultured. that where we're at now? <laughs> Well, I think if that was a word, then yes. <laughs> That's what you, you're not just uncultured. You've gone through some process of culture. <laughs> I have invented the process. All right. Thanks to Jay's suggestion, I've come to the determination that this one's going to, the material that gets larger under pressure is going to be science. Therefore, guppies or kangaroos? I'll, I'm going to go with the guppies one. I don't know. What's going on here? Ten months after they've died? Boy, that's something. I'll, I'll say the guppies. I'll hang out there by myself. All right. Good for you, Evan, for being brave. So I guess we'll start with the <laughs> we'll third start with the one. the second one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists have discovered a material that gets larger under pressure in apparent defiance of the laws of physics. You guys all think that the laws of physics have been broken. And this one is science. Hey. Hey. Material, we're used to, I guess, materials doing all kinds of weird things. 
But the scientists were really surprised by this, so much so that they spent a couple of years verifying it to make sure it was really, really true before they – A couple of years? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it, That's good. Isn't yeah, that no, science, good. Steve? Yeah, how many times said, do you have to punch said, somebody and watch right. it get bigger? You know, to make sure this, that there's no anomaly here or no error that this is absolutely Wait a true. I thought they need to do a press release and announce it that yeah, right. in the journal and then go and figure it out. So this is researchers at the Argonne National Laboratory. And they found um, a class of materials that becomes more porous under pressure. So, Bob, you're right in that the pressure forces a reorganization of the of the molecules, which which makes the substance more porous, thereby increasing its size even while it's under greater pressure. So that may wow. seem like just an interesting anomaly, but this could be potentially useful. Um, porous materials like this are used in drug research and drug manufacturing. It also may be useful in like carbon sequestration or in uh, – Material yeah. separation and catalysis. What's catalysis? Catalyzing reactions, making them go faster. So, yeah, probably not the kind of thing that you're going to be purchasing at the store, but um, useful in industry, you know, pr producing things that, yeah. that you'll find useful. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's, we'll, guess we'll keep working our way backwards. Number two, researchers find that male guppies can reproduce up to 10 months after they have died. Evan, you think this one is the fiction? The rest yeah. of you believe in zombie guppies, and this one is science. Yeah, wow. Oh. Ah. So, so how do you think zombie this guppies. works? Zombie guppies. Well, I, I think it's what Rebecca and I were no, saying. you're all wrong. The, the, the females hold on to it. Yeah. The, uh, the, the sperm oh. can survive in the female for up to 10 months, which is a lot longer than anybody thought was possible. Uh, and so even 10 months after a guppy has, a male guppy has died, theoretically, they can, uh, still reproduce with sperm that they have pre-deposited in the female. That was really cheaty. It was a little cheaty, but I, I, I knew that. I, I agree with that. So wait, does that mean, shut up, I have questions. Does that mean wow. that the female can hold on to, like, different male sperms mm. like collecting different ones and then using them as she oh, yeah. pleases ask Mon like, ask a, like a Monica conscious Lewinsky decision on her so. part I don't, I don't think they i don't wow. think they can that was, a, that was a current reference <laughs> i don't think they can yeah. holding on to sperm think, i mean come on i don't think they can necessarily hold on to multiple different dad's sperm at the same time the, the research article i'm looking at does not comment on that one way or the other yeah no comment. Yeah. But there's a real benefit, though, hmm. to the species because say say there's, you know, 10,000 breeding males. With this ability, there, there's more than 10,000. There's, you know, there's 12 or 13,000 or whatever. You could have advantageous traits still being propagated even though there's no living specimens with that with that trait, you know? Like I think they mentioned um, color. The guppy's color has a, you know, the women are, the female guppies are attracted to certain patterns of color. And uh, they could kind of like rejuvenate that uh, that line that you know those genes, you know, two generations after the the dad died out. Yeah, so they're saying that the effective population size is greater than what it appears, and so yeah. is the genetic variation, the genetic diversity. So yeah, which is yeah, a huge benefit. All right, guppies. Yeah, so the female the female guppies live for about two years. Um, male guppies only live for three to four months. Ooh, nasty. 
So you're right, Rebecca. Uh, Male guppies don't live for 10 months. They only live for ah, three to four months. Yeah. Called it. I, I'm not just terrible at taking care but of But the headline, fish. Jay, was mm-hmm. research shows male guppies reproduce even after death. That was the headline. So, All right. I'm, look, I, I won yeah. science for fiction this so week. So I felt so I justified in, in propagating that little bit of misdirection, which means that new fossil evidence reveals the presence of kangaroo ancestors 25 million years ago in what is now Europe is complete and utter bollocks and fiction. Because when did Australia break off from – I thought it was like a couple hundred million years Yeah, hundreds ago. of millions. About a hun- – No, no, not that long. I'm never about 110 million years ago. Question. Yeah, so – uh, Pangaea broke up into Gondwana and Laurasia, and then Gondwana, which was uh, the southern of those two continents, so Australia broke off from there with um, Antarctica, which then broke off from Australia. I think that's the order in which it happened. So for about a 100 million years or so, Australia has been its own continent, pretty much isolated from everything else. And um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's no possible way that an ancestor of – of uh, kangaroos could be um, in Europe 25 million years ago. The timing doesn't work out. Yeah, so I just totally made that up. Yeah, th- this was the main split between uh, mammals, marsupials and placentals. Uh, the marsupials were isolated to South America and Australia and the placentals everywhere else. And then uh, when the land bridge opened up between, you know, the Panama, you know, land bridge between South America and North America, that's when those mammal populations mixed, but Australia remained isolated, which is why the only native animals, mammals in Australia are all marsupials. The few placentals were introduced at some point. I remember when we were touring in Australia, do you guys remember this? And our tour guide said, tour guide said that fruit bats are the most closely related animal yes. to oh, humans. Yeah. Oh, I'll never forget yeah, that. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Correction. Now, like, Holder yeah. Newt, really, fruit yeah. bats Holder are Newt. more closely related to humans than any other animal. Yeah, but what he wrong. meant was of animals that are currently native to Australia. Well, that's a pretty okay. key thing to forget yeah. at the end of be- the sentence. Because yeah. it's yeah, the point. only placental. Any, any placental would be more closely related to humans than all of the marsupials. So when you say placental, Steve, are you I mean, am I hearing the reference correctly? Yeah, yeah. To a placenta? Exactly. I don't want to, yes. you know, Rebecca, I don't want to make any assumptions on this show. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, you know, you, the mammals are pretty much divided up into marsupials and placentals, yeah, with, you know, an occasional duck-billed platypus thrown in there, but... Uh, <laughs> Monotreme. Monotreme, yeah. Monotreme. Jinx. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, Jay, how about this? Do you got a quote for us this week? I, I got a quote. What's your quote got I to got do with the me? the quote that you need, baby. Here it is. Anybody know who Harlan Ellison is? Oh, my of God. Of course. Yeah. He wrote City it, he on wrote the Edge of Forever? Yeah, yeah, he wrote an episode of Classic Trek, which pissed him wow. off mightily because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that now, why you know him? <laughs> there's a couple other things. Oh, uh, man. The Boy and His Dog, I think, is a book he wrote. I, oh, yeah. That was audio. not that a was good movie. Born uh, 1934, American writer, principal genre is speculative fiction. The quote is, everybody has opinions. I have them. You have them. And we're all told from the moment we open our eyes that everyone is entitled to his or her opinion. Well, that's horse pucky. Of course. We are not entitled to our opinions. We are entitled to our informed opinions. Without research, without background, without understanding, it's nothing. Do it. Come on. 
No. I'm going to do it. I'm ready. Harlan Ellison! Let's get the hell out of here. That was sent in by a listener named Alex Merges. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. And thank you for joining me this week, everyone. You're welcome, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.